Hello and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals podcast, a podcast that talks a bit about some conservation and of course some fun animal facts. I'm your host Eric Mahan and welcome to the podcast guys. Before we begin, just some quick podcast announcements. Just like all the animals and nature we're talking about, how it's ever changing and all that sort of stuff. Um, This is my long exaggerated way of saying that I'm going to be actually pretty busy this upcoming month of May. So the podcast is going to go on a short break, but I should be back on the first Saturday of the month of June. So sorry about that. But hey, you also, I guess, get a vacation from listening to me talk about stuff. Speaking of talking about stuff, why don't we get right into some environmental news. First up, how rewiggling the Swindlebeck brought its fish back. The Swindlebeck, which is a stretch of river close to one of England's largest lakes, is part of a project of, well, re-wiggling. Now, the reason why this river is not wiggly in the first place is because about 200 years ago, the community of Swindle embarked on this ambitious project to actually straighten that section of the river out because they're hoping to speed up the flow of water throughout the valley to increase the amount of farmland surrounding it. Now, unfortunately, that had a lot of unintended consequences because the faster moving water became too fast for the fish that normally called this river home, like um, salmon and trout. So they could no longer spawn there. And because of the faster moving river, there was actually more sediment making its way downstream. Now, trouts and salmon do like faster moving water, but they can't lay their eggs there. So after studying the valley, they were actually able to locate the original path or the curvature of this river. And they enlisted a team of diggers to actually dig out the channels again so that this river would actually go back to the way it originally was. How soon do you think there was going to be results? Well, apparently one of the people who were part of this said the transformation of this river was almost immediately. About three months after the diggers left, they had sights of salmon and trout spawning in the river again. They also noticed that there's now vegetation in the river where there wasn't before because a lot of the vegetation was basically getting swept away by the faster moving water, which also added to the increase of sediment going down. And now that the plants are staying, there are now gravel banks, deep holes, and just so much more oxygen and just way more habitats for all of these amazing animals. And all it took was just doing a little wiggle. Next up, scientists discover why sea urchins are dying off the U.S. to Caribbean. Now, this seems kind of odd because actually there are a number of areas that sea urchins were becoming overpopulated. They were devastating like the kelp forest off the coast of the United States. But that's the western side of the United States. We're talking about the Caribbean side. Sea urchins are important no matter where they are. It's just the western ones were becoming overpopulated and devastating the kelp forest. But the eastern ones are extremely important for the environment as well. But unfortunately, they're starting to die off. Now, marine biologists at Florida University say they might have solved the mystery of why there was such a mass die-off in the first place of long-spined sea urchins found from U.S. to the Caribbean. Scientists blame a microscopic single-cell parasite for the die-off, 
which took hold early last year. Now, the sea urchins, when they catch this disease, actually lose their spines and the ability to use their little suction to kind of stay, well, (laughs) stuck on wherever they end up. And then, of course, they then succumb to the disease, which is just a fancy way for they died. And the other thing that the researchers discovered is that this actually might not be the first time that this happened. That in the 1980s, something similar might have came through and actually wiped out 98% of all the sea urchins. Now, the original die-off was seen in March of last year. And the team actually discovered this pretty much within four months. And they actually only just published their study last week. Yeah, (laughs) they might have known about a year, but science does move slow. They want to make sure that they're getting it right. So it takes a long time to dot the I's and cross the T's before they want to present it, even with something as big as a big die off of any sort of species, because, you know, they post something and it's wrong. Then a lot of funds and a lot of time goes into dealing with a situation that isn't even the problem. But with this, it is this parasite. Now, they took samples of 23 sites around the Caribbean to get samples from places like Aruba, the Virgin Islands, and even Puerto Rico. Now, going back to why it's important that scientists discovered that this did happen in the 1980s is that they kind of have a roadmap to what is most likely going to happen because there are a lot of similarities between the two events. And unfortunately, what happened back in the 1980s is that the coral reefs actually became clogged with algae and starved out these corals for nutrients because corals are alive. And this algae basically grew all over them to a point where basically where they take in food was clogged because urchins are basically the lawnmowers of the sea and make sure the corals are not covered in all this algae so that they can continue to eat and reproduce. But unfortunately for now, scientists have seen the effects of the sea urchin die off already. They are already seeing the potential collapse of certain corals. So there's not any sort of method in dealing with this sea urchin disease yet. But the reason why they are presenting this article is hoping that more people will get involved and that the the future will hold a cure to keep our little lawnmowers out there cutting all the algae off all the corals. And then finally, a living pantry. Now we've talked about food forests before, but a lot of time we're talking about either a forest deep within the Hawaiian rainforest or kind of in less urban areas. Well, that is until now. Because in Tucson, Arizona, they've actually created an urban food forest and it is becoming a model for climate action. So in Tucson, Arizona, in Dunbar Spring, a neighborhood lies there that is unlike any other in the city. It has unpaved sidewalks and are lined with native food bearing trees and shrubs, all fed by rainwater diverted from city streets. Now, one single block on this street could have over a hundred plant species, including goji berries, desert ironwood, and even some cucumber-flavored flowers. Now, this urban food forest began almost 30 years ago and provides food for residents as well as roughage 
for livestock. Now, their tree canopy also provides relief to the residents in the third fastest warming city in the nation. So not only are these trees providing them food, but it is also decreasing the amount of heat coming into their home, which is why a lot of climate scientists are using Dunbar Spring as a model for areas struggling with the increased heat and drought issues that we're seeing with the climate crisis. How did this all begin? Now, it was in September 1996 when all these residents gathered together for the first ever community-wide tree planning event. Because, like many other low-income areas in Tucson, Dunbar Springs was hot, and they lacked street tree cover to provide shade during the brutal summers. It was brutal summers back then, but today it's actually 4.5 degrees warmer than it was in the 1970s. So yeah, good thing they got to jump on it because it's now even hotter than when they even started this. The plan was to create plants with multi-use drought tolerant shade trees in a street side basin that could capture rainwater and create a more livable community. And about 30 years later, the foresters of this neighborhood had planted more than 1,700 trees and thousands more of understory plants, transforming Dunbar Spring into an urban food forest fed completely by rainwater. And it's the actions this neighborhood took that have also helped change Tucson's climate action, including legalizing citywide rainwater harvesting and the planting of arid adapted trees. It's even reached the ears of the mayor, who, after hearing about this neighborhood, launched Tucson's Million Trees Act in 2020, where the initiative was to plant one million drought-tolerant shade trees to help mitigate the impact of climate change. And they're already off to a great start. They've already planted 97 trees to help out about three dozen houses to help decrease the amount of sunlight baking onto their houses while also providing food for the community. And that is your environmental news. So for today's featured species, I want to talk to you guys about an animal I just recently got to spend a a good bit of time with of late. And honestly, they're just so awesome. I, I just had to tell you about them today. So the featured species I want to talk to you guys about is the brush-tailed batong. Now, the brush-tailed batong is also referred to as the brush-tailed rat kangaroo and my personal favorite also referred to as the whaley. They're native to Australia and brush-tailed batongs were formerly found across most of Australia's mainland, pretty much anywhere that was south of the tropics, existing in about 60% of the country. However, today, due to distribution, it has reduced to a handful of nature reserves in the southwest portion of the country and a couple of other handful of translocation attempts throughout South Australia and New South Wales that have been kind of a mix of successes. They enjoy the drier locations of Australia, like desert, scrubland, grasslands, and forests, but dried eucalyptus forests, not the tropical rainforest of the north. Now, for some stats on these guys. Brush-tailed batong are small, ranging in sizes from 11 to 18 inches or 28 to 45 centimeters, and they have quite a long tail of about 10 to 13 inches or 25 to 33 centimeters. And in the wild, they can live about four to six years, but in captivity, they have been known to live up into their teens. 
Now, a little bit about their looks. Brush-tailed batong have relatively large eyes and round ears. Males and females are similar in appearance, though males are typically slightly larger. Their fur is dense and long. They are normally about kind of a gray, grayish brown on their backs and flanks and a bit paler underneath. One of the species' more noticeable features is that they have this kind of black crest of fur that kind of extends down from their tail. Brush-tailed batong are also completely bipedal, which basically means that they can walk on just their back legs, with hind feet measuring not only longer than their front feet, but actually longer than their head themselves. Now, they use their front feet, even though they're much smaller, for digging. And one of the main reasons they do dig is, unlike what was recently thought about these guys, their wild diet mostly consists of fungus. Now, the best way to really think about that, then, is that these guys are basically like smaller kangaroo-like truffle pigs. But unlike the pigs, they don't really want to share what they found. They use their highly sensitive sense of smell to find the fruiting fungus or mushrooms underground and dig them up. Their stomach is even adapted to include increased bacteria, which allows them to break down fungi and release all of its beneficial nutrients. But they can't just eat truffles all the time because, well, <laughs> there's a reason why truffles are expensive. They don't really grow on trees very much. They grow on the ground and they're kind of difficult to find sometimes, even when you have a nose built for it. So they must supplement with other foods like bulbs, seeds, insects, and even resin, which kind of tree sap. They also don't just use those front legs for digging for mushrooms. They also use it for building their nest. You see, they need nests because unlike their cousins, the kangaroo, they are nocturnal. And being so small, they want a safe place and a cool place to sleep during the day. Now, their nests are normally well hidden. It's normally a hole dug in the ground that is surrounded by grass and bark. Now you may be wondering, how do they get all those nest materials like grass and bark to their nests? Because when you look at these guys and their little tiny front legs, they might be good for digging, yes, but they are small and honestly very T-Rex looking. So how can they get all these materials back to their home? And that's where their amazing tail comes into play. Their tail is what is called a prehensile tail which means they can use it to grab onto things sort of like an extra hand. Now, when they're out collecting things, their front legs are normally helping them rip things up or with the help of their teeth, and then they'll collect the bark and the grass or whatever, and they will do kind of a little shuffle and kind of push it back to where their tail is, and their tail is then used to simply pick it up, acting kind of like a backpack to store all their nest materials as they bring it back to their nest. But being a backpack or another hand is not the only cool thing this tail does. This tail is also for balance. Now, as I said a little bit ago, they are related to kangaroos and even wallabies. And even though when they're walking around slow, they may be on all fours, when they really want to go, they can move just like these guys. And that tail is the reason. Now they of course have their big back feet which help launch them forwards and a lot of time how kangaroos, wallabies and of course batong hop they're leaning very far forward to get some speed. But 
without that tail to help counterbalance them, they would just fall straight into the dirt. So without that tail, they would not be going very far at all, and most likely tripping over their big feet. Now, the species is largely solitary, only coming together for courtship and mating. The woilies have a well-developed sense of smell, and they will even communicate with each other through things like scent, urine, feces, and rubbing scent glands. When they do come together, the breeding season is year-round and continuous. So it's basically when the female gives the signals to the male, hey, I'm ready, he'll go find her no matter what time of the year it is. Now, females give birth to a maximum of three babies each year, beginning at the age of 170 to 180 days. Yeah, these guys can breed like rabbits. Now, although twins have been observed in the wild, young are normally born singly. So those three times a year is not all at once. It's normally, okay, one baby's done, get them out. Next baby's done, get them out. Third baby, great. They can do this because they only have a 21-day gestation period, which is actually extremely common with many other marsupials. This is kind of the classic thing of what makes marsupials marsupials is that the development of the baby does not happen technically within the mother very much. Just like kangaroos, all marsupials have pretty much pouches. And what happens is after 21 days, which, like I said, is pretty common for marsupials, the baby is born, but it's not really that developed. A lot of times they look like little pink, sometimes little rice grains or a little bean, pretty much. They basically look like they should still be inside mom growing at this point. And a lot of times they either will crawl themselves or mom will basically pick up the young and place it in her pouch. And it's the pouch where they spend most of their time growing and developing. And inside that pouch, they will remain there actually for 90 to 98 days drinking milk and developing into finally something that looks more like the adult. So that's that's pretty much what a marsupial does most of the time, okay? What we are, we're placental mammals. It means that basically the majority of the baby's development happens in the placental that is found in the mother. Marsupials, the majority of development happens within a pouch. And then, of course, you got the monotremes, which are mammals that lay eggs, where the baby develops inside the egg, like the echidnas and the platypus. Now, the majority of the mammals around the world are placental mammals. There's a reason why Australia is so amazing, because actually a decent bit of their native mammals are marsupials. And it's because it broke away before the placental mammals really developed, because marsupials were around a lot longer than placental mammals. And it's kind of interesting with islands, because if you have a species like marsupials, or if you look to Madagascar with lemurs, certain species that went extinct elsewhere in the world because a more competitive animal came in, they actually get saved by the islands or the fact that their land has been disconnected from the majority of the rest of the world. But enough about that. Let's go back to brush-tailed batong babies. So the 90 to 98 days, they're mainly in the pouch, but at the end of it, they're kind of jumping in and out. Obviously, they're drinking milk that entire time, which means that they have to go back into the pouch, which is where the teat is, 
to get milk from. After about those 98 days, however, the baby batong no longer really gets in the pouch and even the mom will stop letting him in the pouch because it's time for him to grow up. Now, it doesn't mean that he and her separate right away. In fact, he'll still kind of be with her. She kind of teaches him then more how to forage and how to be an adult batong at that point. But unfortunately for him, his time with his mom is now on the clock because pretty much as soon as he moves out of that pouch, a new baby moves right in. Whether it's that the mom breeds with another male or sometimes there's evidence of them saving sperm from a while, they are able to pretty much put a new baby right into that pouch as soon as the older baby grows up. Now the older one still can hang out with mom for a bit, but as soon as that younger baby that is in the pouch grows up and it's his time to then learn from mom, that's when the other older brother gets kicked to the curb. And that's how they can have three separate babies every single year. Because, yeah, it seems weird for us, but that pouch method really can create almost a conveyor belt-like system to make sure that that female is putting out as many of her own genetics as she physically can. Which is good, because we need as many baby batong as we can. Because, as for conservation, they are critically endangered population decreasing. Brush-tailed batong populations have went from 225,000 to around 10,000, 20,000 in the last 15 years. Like I said, they once inhabited more than 60% of the mainland, ranging pretty much everywhere that was south of the rainforest. Now, they can still be found in small pockets in Western Australia and offshore islands in South Australia, as well as a couple pockets along some of South Australia as well, where they try to do some reintroductions. Now, this is super devastating to the wildlife that the batong are declining so rapidly because, in fact, their love of fungi is extremely important for the health of the forest and the woodland ecosystems. These little diggers help spread fungal spores and seeds, which help create a better home and environment for plants and other wildlife. An individual brush-tailed batong digs about 38 to 115 holes each night, which equates to each of them moving about 6 tons of soil each year. And all that turning of soil is super nutritious, spreading out nutrients, as well as aerating the soil itself, and it just creates a much healthier ecosystem and makes plants and animals have easier lives. So yeah, they're like the little gardeners of Australia. So what's devastating these poor little gardeners, you may ask? So historically, it's been fox and feral cats. Now, foxes were introduced because they were brought here to be hunted for hunting purposes. It was completely recreational for the people living there at the time. But now there's an estimated of 1.7 million foxes living in Australia. And if you thought that number was big, the estimated feral cat population is 2.8 million. And that's just from people with pets, bringing them in and letting them get out and breed and all that sort of issues that we have pretty much everywhere. But it's super devastating in Australia because so many of those animals are not used to dealing with these style of predators where at least there's a little bit of a chance for a lot of our 
wildlife around the world because they're used to things like house cats and foxes. Not so much in Australia, although I do have to say the the spread of foxes and feral cats are still pretty devastating everywhere, unfortunately. But like I said, extremely devastating in Australia. Along with habitat destruction, these poor little brush-tailed batong are getting hit by everybody at every different angle. And because of that, their genetic diversity has also shrunken, and there is even evidence of that causing health issues. So just add one more thing onto the pile of crap that is affecting these poor little gardeners. So what can we do? Now, eventually, if you can keep the population going, genetic diversity will come back. But you got to stop the batong from getting wiped out by all the other things. In an attempt to regrow the population of brush-tailed batong, two main conservation initiatives have been put into place. Careful habitat management and monitoring and the reduction of local fox populations. These actions, of course, are being coordinated by the Department of Environmental and Conservation in Western Australia. And they have used a wide range of different methods of dealing with foxes, trapping, netting, shooting, fumigation. I know some of them seem very mean and drastic, but you got to remember they're not supposed to be there. As for cats, they don't really have the dens like foxes have. So fumigation is kind of how they mostly stick to the trapping and netting, which I know all of it seems very unfair. But it's not their fault. It's people's fault. Okay, these animals aren't supposed to be there at all. They're outside their native range and they're just trying to survive. So it seems very unfair. But the more unfair thing is the fact that Australia's native wildlife is being devastated by it. So because it's our fault, even though it's a hard, difficult job that nobody wants to truly have to do, it is our responsibilities to do it to clean up our mess and save the amazing brushtail baton. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the amazing baton. As always, check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And of course, you can always email me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com if you have any questions or concerns or Just want to say, hey, I guess, especially since, like I said at the beginning, I'll be off for about a month. So if you're getting an itch to hear something about animals or whatever, you can send me an email. I'll be still checking that throughout the month as well. But thanks again for listening. That's our show. Thank you guys so much for coming and hanging out and letting me talk your ears off about cool animals and conservation. I'll see you all next time.